With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at the week's news. China's central bank will soon appoint two new deputy governors in an effort to bring in more expertise to tackle systemic financial risks after a government shakeup in March gave the bank more authority, Caixin has learned. The People's Bank of China has internally approved the appointment of Liu Guoqiang, previously one of its assistant governors, and Zhu Hexin, a former vice president of the Bank of China, as new deputy governors, sources told Caixin. In March, a major overhaul of China's financial regulatory framework gave the PBOC new responsibilities, including drafting key rules for the banking and insurance sectors. Liu and Zhu, who have years of experience in macroeconomic policy and the banking industry, will be expected to help steer the central bank in its newly expanded role. The clock is ticking for mainland Chinese companies seeking to list in Hong Kong by taking over other companies whose shares already trade on the city's bourse. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange is preparing to revise rules to crack down on the practice, known as a reverse takeover or a backdoor listing, as part of efforts to clean up the market, improve the quality of listed companies, and offer better protection to investors. Also in the firing line are companies that sell their assets and turn themselves into shell companies, but remain listed in the hope that another company will do a reverse takeover. The proposed regulations aren't intended to stop backdoor listings and shell activities entirely, but to ensure that companies that use these avenues do not skirt rules and undermine investors' confidence and overall market quality. Hong Kong stock market, Asia's third largest by market value, has become a popular exchange for backdoor listings over the last few years among mainland Chinese companies that would not qualify to list through an ordinary IPO, but want to gain entry to the stock market to raise money or gain credibility. A backdoor listing usually allows a company to skip the lengthy regulatory scrutiny and due diligence that an IPO requires. Once the deal is done, the buyer then injects its assets into the combined listed company. Medlinker has become China's latest unicorn following a fundraising that values the four-year-old online medical community at more than $1 billion. The company now earns several hundred million yuan per year, deriving the bulk of that from medical-related clients such as drug makers, 
medical device sellers, and insurance providers. Medlinker is one of a new group of startups that are trying to find success by making medical products and services more widely available to average Chinese consumers using web-based technology. Unlike more mature Western markets, where doctors often work out of their own offices individually and in small private groups, China's doctors and medical services are mostly confined to a network of hospitals and clinics nationwide, most of them government-run. In a bid to improve the system's efficiency, Beijing is letting more private money into the sector, which has fostered a new generation of privately owned clinics and medical-related services. Tencent is one of Medlinker's major shareholders after the company led a $6 million funding round for the company in 2015. Medlinker hopes to build up its business by bringing together a virtual network of verified identity doctors with patients and medical products and service providers in an online community. Medlinker won its latest funding shortly after another Tencent-backed company, online healthcare provider WeDoctor, completed an even larger $500 million fundraising round that valued the company at $5 billion. Ping'an Good Doctor is also part of the new generation of service providers, making a Hong Kong IPO in May. Authorities are closing the loopholes that have allowed film and TV stars to minimize their tax payments after a furor over A-lister Fan Bingbing's finances brought shady practices into the limelight. Several regions that have played host to film and television production studios are tightening their accounting standards and have stopped offering tax incentives that would have allowed major celebrities to hand over less than 3% of their earnings to the taxman. In theory, stars with individual studios should be paying personal income tax on their film and TV earnings at a rate of 35%. In practice, however, some regions take a lax approach to auditing individual studios' books and will accept a fixed levy often set under 3% of the studio's income. This means that some studios are paying less tax on their earnings than a worker whose salary falls in China's lowest tax bracket. But the curtain looks to be falling on the low tax days. In May, prominent TV host Cui Yongyuan published documents on social media that allegedly showed Fan Bingbing had made $7 million more than her stated income, partly through the use of a contract through her individual studio. An outcry ensued on social media, and in June, Xinhua reported that she was being investigated. Fan has not been seen in public for weeks. Starbucks has finally entered China's booming food delivery sector, announcing a partnership with Ulama that aims to cover 30 cities and over 2,000 stores by the end of this year. The tie-up with the Alibaba-owned platform comes as the coffee giant faces heated competition in China as domestic rivals use steep discounts and internet-powered convenience to vie for the country's growing number of coffee drinkers. Starbucks and Ulama will launch the service in September at 150 Beijing and Shanghai stores, the companies said. Starbucks said that deliveries will be completed within 30 minutes. It will also establish delivery kitchens inside branches of Hema, a supermarket chain under Alibaba that has both an online and offline presence, leveraging the latter's logistics system to fulfill delivery orders. As China's love of Americanos and lattes has grown, Local coffee chains have taken advantage of two of Starbucks' perceived weak points, its higher prices and slower adaptation to emerging internet trends. Starbucks embraced mobile payment platforms late. WeChat Pay was only accepted after December 2016 and Alipay in September.
Luckin Coffee, a seven-month-old startup based in Beijing, charges about 15% less than the average price of a cup of Starbucks coffee, which is about $4.50. It also allows customers to order their drinks through a mobile application, which notifies them when it is ready to be collected from the nearest branch. Heineken is spending three billion U.S. dollars to acquire a 40% stake in the ownership of China's biggest beer maker, ramping up its efforts to tap the world's largest beer market. The Dutch brewer is purchasing an interest in China Resources, the majority shareholder of CR Beer, which owns Snow Beer. Under the deal, Heineken will sell its existing China operations to CR Beer, including three breweries, and will license its Heineken brand in China to CR Beer on a long-term basis. CR Beer's Snow is the world's best-selling beer, even though it is sold almost exclusively in China. The company said it aims to leverage Heineken's global presence and marketing capabilities to help pave the way for Snow's international expansion. China's brewery market shows signs of moving into the premium segment as total beer sales jumped seven percent in 2017. The Dutch company has some catching up to do in China. Despite coming into the country in 1983, Heineken commanded only a 0.5 percent share of the market last year, lagging far behind other foreign brands such as Carlsberg, which had a 5 percent share. The competitive landscape has pushed out some players. Japan's Asahi announced in December it will sell its stake in Qingdao to conglomerate Fosun International, citing a market slowdown. Let's turn now, as we do each week, to some of Tyson Global's reporters and editors for a look at some of the big news. First up this week is David Kirtan, who joins us for the first time. David, you've got a story about yet another Chinese M&A deal thwarted, but this time by the German government. Tell us what's going on here. So,、um, for the first time,、um, the German government has moved to block an acquisition from、uh, a Chinese company. In this case,、uh, the Chinese company is Yantai Taihai Group. Uh, which was、uh, moving to purchase、uh, Leifeld Metal Spinning. Now,、uh, that's a company that primarily deals with building the machinery that、uh, then helps companies to develop sheet metal for advanced planes, high-end cars,、uh, that sort of thing. And for the first time, the、uh, German government has moved to、um, block a deal on the basis that it would be surrendering core technologies over to China. At least that's as far as we can see.、Um, one of the issues with the deal is that、um, a lot of this has happened behind closed doors, and we know that the German government has been investigating the proposed deal for some time. But there haven't been any public announcements as to why they would be looking into it or why they'd have an issue. But、um, it seems that, in the wake of other recent issues with Chinese takeovers of German companies, that would be the case. So maybe we can find some clues to the reason that the Germans moved to block this deal. What's the context for this, and what what do we know about the potential buyer? As always with Chinese companies, there's anxieties about the potential for links to the Chinese state. And in making this move, the German government was essentially following a trend across、um, European capitals to be nervous about Chinese acquisitions within their countries.、Um, this is largely driven by concern that as China pursues Made in China 2025, its own agenda to upgrade its manufacturing capabilities to the higher end over the next couple of years. Um, there's real concern across European capitals that their own domestic industries are being left at a competitive disadvantage, 
and that Chinese companies can essentially move in under the guise of free trade and free investment with uh, relatively little scrutiny of the ultimate backer of these companies, which they tend to worry is the Chinese state. So in the German context in particular, Germany has been of major interest to China, partly because its industries are so geared towards the higher, higher end um, manufacturing and tech development that China aspires to emulate itself. Most notably and controversially, in 2016, a Chinese company acquired a company called Kuker AG, which is um, Germany's biggest robotics company. And that deal went through fine, though, right? That deal went through, but it did cause some head scratching within Berlin and concern across European capitals as to how easily Chinese companies could acquire European key technologies. So what makes this current case interesting, or the collapse of the deal for Leifeld, the German company, so interesting, is that for the first time, Germany has created the legislative means to intercept our Chinese um, investment in one of its companies. What's interesting also is that um, the German government never needed to use the veto. The Chinese company actually decided to pull out of the deal um, a day before Angela Merkel's cabinet was due to veto the deal. But from accounts within German media, it was a done deal. German parliament had already voted behind closed doors again to scupper the deal. And it was only a matter of time until it went to the cabinet and the cabinet also shut it down. So they've decided to pull out before it got to the stage where it would perhaps become more embarrassing for all involved. And yet at the same time, it's going to cause some consternation within Beijing at this backlash against its companies moving into Europe. So for Germany, this was the first time they've done this. But what's the wider European context look like? It's worth bearing in mind that even though there's a hardening of attitudes across some European capitals, uh, Europe has still attracted far more investment from China than, say, North America and the U.S. in particular, where the U.S. through uh, an institution called CFIUS has largely blocked a great number of Chinese potential deals. So even so far in the first half of this year, a report from a law firm called Baker McKenzie put Chinese M&A in Europe as totaling $22 billion. And that's uh, an increase on last year, even if you take out the massive deal that went through for ChemChina to acquire uh, Syngenta, a massive Swiss agrochemicals company. So even uh, although this is gathering backlash, um, Europe is still a major magnet for Chinese investment and acquisition. What's going to be interesting going forward is whether the German move to scupper this deal sets a precedent where European capitals feel that they need to take a firmer stand against Chinese investment or even need to view it more negatively than they did previously. And in that case, it, the EU could move to being closer to the US where Chinese companies have traditionally had a more hostile reception. Well, thanks, David. And we'll check back in with you in a couple of months to see what other European deals have been scuppered. A couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a couple of weeks then. Cheers. Take care. Next up is Doug Young, managing editor of Tyson Global. A potentially exciting story here. Some rumors about Google and a possible return to China. Lots of controversy over this, as you'd expect. Uh, what's the latest on this? The latest is a, a really interesting report that came out in a, a publication called The Intercept. 
Uh, but it, it's certainly gotten wide play. All the major media have picked it up. And I think the reason people are doing that is because it seems to cite a very deep level of very specific detail that seems like it's probably coming from real people inside Google. And the story is Google has been secretly setting up a new censored, basically, search engine to come back to China. And the story cites all sorts of insider people and code names for projects, numbers of people who knew about the project, and it, just all sorts of insider information. And that, on top of all that, it does seem to be coming from perhaps someone who's not too happy about this project, who might have an interest in leaking it to the media to perhaps get it squashed or at least raise some controversy and so forth. So that's the story, is uh, Google, after sort of very highbrowedly leaving China in 2010, saying they didn't want to play Beijing's censorship game, is now suddenly saying, oh, we'll play Beijing's censorship game after all, and they're trialing this project or this this uh, search engine, which sounds like, I mean, they, they talk about it being censored, but I mean, Google's earlier search engine was very highly censored also, so Seems like this is basically just trotting out, you know, or maybe updating the old search engine that got shut down in 2010, maybe with a few extra algorithms to filter out sensitive content. And they're supposedly trialing it right now. And the, the report says they think they can maybe launch it in the next six to nine months. So, Doug, is this completely out of the blue or were there clues that something like this might have been afoot earlier? Well, it's really not out of the blue at all. Uh, what happened is basically Google had the blow up. And then probably within like three or four years, they, they started to realize maybe this was a little bit rash, a little bit hasty. This is the world's biggest internet market and so on and so forth. Uh, and then one of the big uh, changes was when they split off Alphabet or Alphabet became the parent company. And so Suddenly, the guy, Larry Page, who was one of the co-founders and later became CEO, but he was one of the people who was thought to be sort of a major person who wanted to pull them out. He basically got bumped up to Alphabet, and Google became a separate company under Alphabet, and they brought in a new guy named Sundar Pichai, who's their CEO now. And, and at one point, Larry Page actually said to him, you know, China's up to him, basically gave him a bit of a clean slate. And this was back in 2015. And since then, we've really seen this steady series of signals that, that Google is trying to re-engage with China. They've started holding annual or regular app developer conferences for people who make apps for Android, because Android is, is really big in China. They held a really big uh, Go tournament, the tournament, the Chinese board game. Uh, Google had this artificial intelligence computer that beat the world champion in Go, who happened to be a Chinese guy. And most recently, they've opened an artificial intelligence lab here in Beijing. So they've been really playing up to Beijing because these are all things that Beijing is very keen on, you know, uh, promoting artificial intelligence you know, mobile internet, which is Android and, and Android apps. So, you know, they've been really trying to get back into Beijing's good graces, I would say. Companies chase profits, that's what they do. But are there other reasons why Google might be interested in getting back into China? You know, it's about money and influence. But, you know, you look at the China internet and mobile market. China's the world's biggest mobile market. I just did some looking. I think they have 1.5 billion mobile accounts now, which is like more than the entire population. 
And Apple has maybe 10% of the market. So you're talking about 90% of the market is Android. And, and who makes Android? Google. So, you know, when you are the owner and controller of such a huge platform, you know, this is being used by 1.3 billion customers, you, you've really got to be a fool not to try and take advantage of it. And that's why they did the, you know, they restarted the developer conferences because obviously you need to make apps for this. But China has not let Google do an app store. Google hasn't started selling its smartphones in China, which are go under the Pixel brand. And then they don't have a search engine. And these are all things that could easily be slipped into Android if Google were allowed to operate here. And, and you know, they could probably make a fortune off that. Well, great, Doug. I will certainly be keeping a close eye on the story as this is a topic I'm really keenly interested in. Uh, and we will talk to you soon, Matt. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Kaiser. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Tyson Seneca Business Brief is powered by SUP China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Tyson Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Tyson Global and to Spring and Autumn and Fei for the music. Check out the latest podcast in the Seneca Network, New Voices on Women in China, as well as our flagship current affairs show, Seneca. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SUP China. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.